Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pakulski. Today, as always, we frame this podcast around living our greatest life in a body that we absolutely love. And I hope each and every one of you realizes this is possible. And if you're having a hard time, or at least up at this point in your life, you've had a hard time building a body that you love or crafting a life that really makes you feel fulfilled when you wake up, it could just be this reality that you're looking at the wrong things. You're placing your attention on the wrong things, or maybe you're not following through on those things. And it's not your fault. We can all absolutely follow through. We just need the right steps. We need to point our head in the right direction, take daily action toward our dreams, toward our goals. Today's conversation is with Dr. Dan Stickler. We talk about coronavirus, thinking about the body in terms of complex systems. And what does that mean? It means instead of looking at it as isolated parts, we think about how one part invariably, inextricably affects everything else. So when I consume one thing, which may have a positive effect, it could also be having a negative effect somewhere else. It could also be having multiple effects that I'm not even aware of somewhere else. And I think this is a brilliant way to approach optimization. So Dan is an expert in optimization. He talks about peptides in today's podcast. We talk a little bit about optimizing the immune system for coronavirus rather than running away from this coronavirus, looking at how we can just optimize the immune system going forward long-term. I think that's a beautiful way to frame it. Rather than being afraid of something, let's just all work on building our army, building our soldiers, so that anything that comes around, we are the one who thrives. We are the one who steps up. We are the one who survives. I certainly do not want to be the weakest link in any chain. I always want to be the strongest link. I want to be pulling people along, lifting people up rather than slowing everyone down like an anchor. So the conversation with Dan today is recorded live onto the Muscle Intelligence Facebook group. If you're not already a member there and you are on Facebook, that's a great way to connect with me and all of the guests and actually be able to ask questions live and have them answered, which is a super fun new addition we've added in during this coronavirus situation, just so you guys can engage. We want to keep you guys engaged and ultimately serving you in the best way we can to answer questions. Dan is the owner and CEO of Apiron Medical, which is uh, focused on epigenetics and optimization. He's an absolute wealth of information, certainly one of the people that I view as an authority, as perhaps one of the top authorities in the entire world on optimizing the body. He's a physician who lives out in Austin, Texas, splits his time between there and Asheville, North Carolina. So Without further ado from and rambling for me, I hope you guys love the podcast with Dr. Dan Stickler. I know you're going to get a ton of value. Take some notes. Dan is brilliant. Today's podcast is brought to you guys by Blue Blocks. Our friends over at Blue Blocks, Andy is, again, hooking you up with an incredible deal on Blue Blocking Glasses. If you're spending more time on your computer, you're spending more time in your house, make sure you're protecting your eyes, protecting yourself, and protecting your circadian rhythms. Get outside every morning, get some sun in your eyes, reset those clocks and during the day, and especially at night. If you are not blocking the blue or at least blocking the bright light in the evening, you will be suppressing deep sleep. You will be suppressing REM sleep. So we don't want to do that. Sleep is literally our master reset. Don't neglect your sleep. It is not a badge of honor to sleep less or poorly. Head over to blueblocks.com, bl ublox.com and you can use the code muscle to get 15%. Enjoy the podcast. Dr. Dan, thank you for joining me, man. Absolutely. 
So in this interesting time, many people want to spend a lot of time discussing optimization of, or many people want to spend a lot of time talking about all the negatives that are potentially happening right now. But I'd love to flip it and focus on what we need to do to optimize, right? And For sure. the idea of most people running away from stress and fear and pain, and I think that's important. But maybe more importantly, how do we then do things on the other end? So we're optimizing our life so we don't have to worry about getting sick and maybe we don't have to worry about you know, not being broke, we can worry about being rich and abundant and healthy and optimized. And really, so I'd love to talk about what you know about this coronavirus, because I think a lot of people are living this reality of massive amounts of fear. You know, people who say they're living at a low level of fear historically are now significantly elevated, whether we like it or not. And it's, I think the uncertainty, the ambiguity with what potentially exists in the future is a big concern. But I'd love to have you just kind of bring us up to date with what you know about the current state of affairs. <laughs> yeah. And long short answer is that we don't know a lot about it and then you know that's the biggest problem is where it's just a ton of speculation out there right now i'm in a couple of uh, whatsapp groups that are made up of researchers from universities around the world physicians from around the world and government people so we're trying to kind of weed out a lot of the noise and try to figure out what's actually the reality of the situation what's actually working in this situation and you know, there's a ton of stuff going out that are we're being hit by other government agencies uh, from around the world with a lot of false stuff to create fear. And, uh, you know, we just have to kind of weed through that and say, okay, what's the reality and what's not with this virus? I mean, it's a brand new virus. I mean, you know, we've known coronaviruses, but this particular one has a whole different component to it. And we're applying best practices based on what we understand of the mechanism and saying, okay, well, this should work. So let's try that. And that's the state of affairs. I mean, we don't have solid answers right now, but fortunately we, as in the United States have been on the tail end of a lot of this. So we're actually getting the benefits of the countries that got hit early, like China and Italy. Provided they're willing to share real information with us, right? Right. Right. And a lot of it is coming out as pretty credible information. So, you know, you've got to look at two aspects of this. You've got to look at one, the prevention aspect and two, the treatment once it occurs. And well, and I guess a third aspect of, you know, how do we manage it to keep the medical system from being overwhelmed? And, you know, that's our biggest impact right now. I mean, none of this shelter in place or these measures that we're taking right now are designed to contain the virus. They're designed to trickle the virus into society and hopefully reduce the number of people that actually get it. But that trickling effect will make it so that we don't overwhelm the medical system. I mean, New York City right now is completely overwhelmed. The number of ICU beds and ventilators are, I think at this point, are surpassed by the number of people requiring them which is not something we want to repeat in any other cities. I mean, Austin's been really good with the people sheltering in place prior to the order for it. We just got the order last night, but I mean, the streets have been a ghost town for the last week and a half, which is great. I mean, I I love to see the community coming together in this aspect, but you know, like you said, it's not, this isn't something that, yes, it's a once in a lifetime thing, but it's a black swan. We never know when this is going to happen. So the goal is be prepared for it and don't go into fear. Don't go into panic. Just make sure you know you're prepared. You know, it's just like, you know, when I walk in the park down here in Austin, it's no big deal. I walk in a park in New York City. I'm more aware 
of what's going on. And I kind of take precautions to say, okay, well, you know, I want to be a little bit more vigilant right now. We're in a time where we need to be more vigilant, but we still need that baseline of an immune system that that can be anti-fragile against this stuff. What are we seeing as far as trends? I know you're kind of keeping up to date with, you know, trends around the world. So I've heard speculatively that Italy saw a sharp increase in deaths. And I've heard New York's obviously seen a sharp increase in diagnosis, but like any kind of general statements as far as what seems to be happening with the trends, is the curve flattening? Well, with the measures we've taken into account right now, I mean, I think we're going to look at probably another seven to 10 days of rising numbers. That's not going to reflect the fact of what we've done already, but at the seven to 10 day mark, that's where we should see the impact of what we've done at this point, because you've got up to a seven to 10 day, even up to 14 day incubation period for this. So people have been exposed. People are sheltering now. But what we'll see is that the numbers will increase and then they should cap and then start to drop. And that's what we're hoping for with this shelter in place that's being implemented in most cities. Yeah. Is there a pretty clear set of symptoms that have been diagnosed? Because I've heard conflicting thoughts. Like, obviously, we know it starts with a fever and then it goes respiratory. But then you hear some other things that may be intermingled there. Any updated thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, we know pretty much the symptoms now and they're not clear cut though, as far as what's going to happen. I mean, fever, severe, severe joint and muscle aches. Okay. This is pretty classic and a cough. I mean, those are the three that are going to occur in 70 to 80% of people. Now in other people, one of the early signs is loss of the sense of smell. They're noticing this in some asymptomatic carriers And they're also noticing it in some of the more severe cases as well. So it's not that if you have it, then it means you're just going to carry it and be done. It could be a harbinger to a more severe case. They're also seeing GI symptoms at a higher rate in the people that are requiring ventilators. So they're seeing that people were getting diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting as their first signs of the virus. But they almost always progress to the fever, cough, and body aches. Now, the sore throat is not as common as most. And, you know, this is one of the things that you want to try to differentiate from the flu. So the cough is not common with the flu. The other stuff is more in line with what we're seeing with coronavirus. Very interesting. Uh, I've heard there's kind of two ends of the spectrum. Is it true that there's maybe a more mild version or a stronger version? Or is that more based on somebody's immune system? Yeah, I think it's all individualized on the immune reaction to it. And yes, you're more likely to get the common symptoms when you're healthier, but it doesn't exempt you from the fact that, you know, you could still fall in that 1% that's going to get a, a severe response to it. But we don't even know these numbers. I mean, all we look at is the number of diagnosed cases and the number of deaths. That's what we're looking at. Sure. We don't know what the prevalence of this is in the population. So all of our numbers are speculation based on what we have diagnosed. But I know there's tons of people out there. I was just on a call with one of my clients from the UK and it was interesting because about a month ago, he had the classic symptoms. He had severe fever, severe body aches and a cough. He actually sent me a recording of his cough a month ago and he went three weeks with this thing and just felt like crap. But he had been skiing in Zurich and had friends fly in from around the world that they were together. And and he and the other friend both developed the cough, the fever, and the body aches. So I suspect that he probably had it back in mid-February. Wow. Uh, So interesting. Now, have you heard any 
cases from different parts of the world, like I kind of started talking about this, maybe they're different incidences or different populations that are predisposed, meaning kids, adults, men. I heard this morning it's going to be 80% men. Any kind of guidance there on who seems to be the greatest demographic? Yeah, again, we don't have real numbers on that. And populations are going to respond differently. We've seen that with many viruses. This one in particular has a predisposition to a more Asian population for sure. And a lot of that has to do with the ACE2 receptors, which is where it's binding. So we see genetic variants in populations that have different polymorphisms of the ACE2 and the renin and angiotensin system. I mean, this is what's being attacked here. So not only do we have a different incidence of propensity to get it, but we also have a different incidence of how severe it can be. And again, we just don't have the numbers. I mean, in the Asian population, you just didn't see it in kids. And yet here in the U.S., we're seeing 50% of the cases that are under 50 years old. Hmm. So it is hitting a younger population here in the U.S. We saw the same thing in Italy. But in China, it was predominantly the older population. Now, if we know it's the ACE2 receptor, is there a way that you know of that we're exploring to help mitigate that kind of entry point? It seems like that's the entry point, right? Yeah, it's attaching to the ACE2 receptors on type 2 pneumocytes in the lungs. And what happens is when they basically die, they secrete surfactant that keep the surface tension to keep the alveoli open. So they die and the pressure drops and the alveoli collapse. And that's what's leading to the lung issues. But yeah, there's quite a few things that we're speculating on benefiting if we're talking about strictly that ACE2 you know, one of the things that somebody was talking about is nicotine. So nicotine is actually able to downregulate the messenger RNA for ACE2. Now, does that mean you should go out and smoke and, and hopefully you won't get it? No, because, you know, all this is a complex system. So every plus there's a minus. And with nicotine, it may be okay to do a lozenge or a gum to boost the nicotine in the system to lower the ACE2 and perhaps lower the probability of getting it. There's other drugs that you look at that and substances that can increase ACE2. And those are the ones that we're a little leery of. Uh, A lot of people that are on angiotensin receptor blockers, not a good thing because you get upregulation of the ACE2 with that. But again, it's speculation. We don't know the answer to that. And even just getting, you know, you've got to look at blocking the the ability of the virus to attach, and then the body's response to the virus is a big deal. You know, I'm sure you've heard of the cytokine storm that's creating a Can you, can you describe that? Because I don't think anyone will know what that means. Yeah, so it's basically the body's immune response. It's a natural response, but it kind of goes haywire. To put it in kind of layman's terms here, it's just that the, the immune response trying to kill this virus all of a sudden just goes crazy and it creates more problems than what it's actually trying to treat. So we want to mitigate that cytokine storm. And there's a couple of speculative products that will help with that. This is one of the areas where we think that the high dose vitamin C can be beneficial, uh, mitigates it. We're looking at quercetin as well to kind of mitigate that. I'm recommending my medical clients to take quercetin ongoing right now. What Uh, dose is generally 500 milligrams a day. Some people are talking about twice a day, but again, in our medical groups that we're discussing this, it's pure speculation on that. So is that an immune booster? What's the mechanism there? Quercetin is somehow blocking the ability of the virus to really infect the cells. And so it's got a mechanism there, but there's also a mechanism apparently that is mitigating the cytokine storm. Hmm. So you just have them taken ongoing anyways, even if they don't feel like they have symptoms. Right. Got it. 
So vitamin C, quercetin, anything else that you'd suggest as far as kind of best practices? Certainly everything lifestyle for sure. But as far as specific interventions, one of the things we send out to all of our clients is to Dalaville, Cialis. Really? Yeah. So five milligrams of Cialis, if they start showing symptoms, is something that we're looking at as a mitigation factor to really boost the nitric oxide system. You know, nitric oxide is a significant component of this, and we have a good, healthy nitric oxide system that helps. So we've got people doing the Neo40 dissolvable tablets to boost nitric oxide, and then the uh, Tadalafil on top of that really boosts that aspect. Wow. Yeah, right. so just preventing the type of effect to the lungs, or the is that what kind of you're looking at? It's actually boosting the immune response to the virus to help to kill it. Interesting. So as far as supplements go, you mentioned vitamin C and quercetin. Is there anything else that you'd suggest like on a consistent basis that people would be taking? Like we'll get into lifestyle stuff, of course, because, you know, as I said, when we started, the reason I wanted to talk to you is not just to talk about this virus. I know you're an expert in many things, but specifically like looking at human optimization and what that looks like now, what should be the low-hanging free people looking at, but I'd love to just finish up with the supplement conversation. Well, I have foundational multivitamins that I put people on. So vitamin D, absolute must. Vitamin D with K2. I keep those vitamin D levels up. I know Chris Masterjohn put out an article that said, don't do vitamin D because it's going to upregulate ACE2 receptors. But the, you know, I think that was a conclusion that was poorly made based on the data. It was based on rat studies with rats being exposed to lipopolysaccharides and they were using super high dose because vitamin D is so essential for a healthy immune system and you just, you don't want to compromise that. So vitamin D, a good multivitamin with a methylfolate, methyl B12, a good mix of vitamin A, both in the beta carotene and fat insoluble form that helps as well as I like, you know, fish oil, even though some people will say it's a immunosuppressant in some sense. But fish oil will mitigate that inflammatory response really well. So those are kind of three core things. And right now I have people taking high-dose vitamin C. And this is very specific just for this situation. So I don't recommend high-dose C routinely. And then the quercetin. How much is high-dose vitamin C? Uh, something over 2,000 milligrams a day. Yeah, Divided dosages. Yeah, or even a liposomal if you can get it. They're hard to get liposomals right now, but they're going to get into the cell a little bit better. Any feedback on N-acetylcysteine? Start there. Any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, you know, the glutathione system is the master regulator of the immune system. And N-acetylcysteine is a nice feed into that, you know, a nice substrate for that. The interesting thing is, you know, they're telling everybody to avoid ibuprofen because they're seeing correlations with that being related to the people getting the most severe symptoms. And so they're telling everybody to take Tylenol. Well, Tylenol actually depletes NAC levels. Uh, so, you know, you've got a double-edged sword there. So what we're doing is recommending anybody taking the Tylenol to certainly take NAC, but anything that boosts glutathione is going to boost the immune system. And you don't want to do it on a ongoing basis as a baseline because, you know, the body has, does a pretty good job of taking care of it if you feed it the right materials. But in this situation, anything boosting glutathione is going to protect you in the short term. Do you like liposomal glutathione or not so much? Yeah, yeah, I do. I actually sent out a thing to have all my clients order liposomal glutathione and start taking it on a you know twice a week basis right now. And if they get something to take it daily. Uh, how do you feel about glutathione versus vitamin C and IV form? Well, I mean, you can get a much higher dose. But how's the absorption? 
Well, liposomal glutathione is pretty highly absorbed. I mean, yeah. in most things in the liposomal form, you can get pretty good serum levels with that. Vitamin C, like I said, the liposomal form will cross much better. You can do a much lower dose of it. But when we're talking like high dose vitamin C, I mean, we're talking doses in the thousands for the IV form of it that they're using to treat the cytokine storm. I mean, we actually have IVs in our clinic with a substance called Plenish, which is a mix of nutrients, but it also has high dose vitamin C. We add additional vitamin C to it and we add glutathione to it. That would be for really boosting a system that's severely compromised and generally not necessary in most people. Is there good data around people actually seeing a benefit from, I hear so much conflicting information around vitamin C IVs versus glutathione IVs actually being beneficial. Is there relatively solid science there? Uh, no. And yes, there are some studies that show some benefit, but there's also studies that show no benefit. So we don't know the answer to it. The Chinese have published a couple papers on using the high dose vitamin C, but these are in people that were severely compromised cytokine storms using them in that situation. It's been working. Should you take high dose on a regular basis? Absolutely not. Could high dose potentially be beneficial in the short term? Yeah. But taking high-dose vitamin C orally can be pretty upsetting to the stomach, too, and can cause some diarrhea, so it can confuse people and think that they've got something going on. How about mushrooms? Do you ever experiment with non-psychedelic mushrooms? <laughs> I was going to say, okay, getting a little personal there, Ben. Uh, <laughs> I don't have a lot of experience working with like mushrooms or CBD right now, and I know a lot of people are promoting both of those as potential benefits. I don't have any answers on that. Okay. Dan, my favorite thing, and you know, I've been kind of transparent with some of the audiences, like I'm starting to work with you. I'm really looking forward to work with you. You're someone who I respect more than anyone in this industry. And one of the things that really appeals to me is the systems approach. And I'd love for you to explain what that is to the listener, because I don't think people understand it. I think it seems to be the most comprehensive way to look at the human system. Yeah. I mean, what we need to do is we really need to start looking at the human body as a complex system. We've taken the approach in health and medicine of looking at it as a complicated system. And in complicated systems, they're very predictable systems. It's like an airplane. And, you know, when an airplane fails, it doesn't matter if it's scattered in thousands of pieces, we can always identify where the point of failure was. When a bird drops out of the air, you know, how do we determine what these pieces do? Because we don't have predictability of response with this. You know, the requirement of a complicated system is that it is 100% predictable based on the input that's put into it. It doesn't adapt. And when we break it down, we can be very reductionistic and every piece does this. A lot of people in the healthcare industry take that approach, including in medicine. I mean, that's why we have algorithms in medicine. A medicine algorithm is essentially trying to make the system, the human system, a complicated system. And the problem is it's complex and it is highly adaptable and it is rarely predictable in its response. So to take that approach, everything that we do is going to be probabilities. We're not going to have 100% answers. And the more data points we have to feed into this to use to determine, the more accurate we can get on the predictions. Right. And so we look at the human system and we look at everything that goes into the human system as an input. You know, even food, food, people look at it as a macronutrient, but food is a bioactive. And every type of food that we eat has some kind of an impact on the system, whether it be from a biochemical level or from an epigenetic level, it's going to change gene expressions in some way. The body's going to respond to it. So everything that goes in, the body has a response. And I can tell you, 
from experience, just about every input we have to the system has a pro and a con. So what we have to do is look at the outcome that's desired, balance these pros and cons and look for the net positive in the effect and say, okay, this has a higher probability that it will be a beneficial thing to put into the system to get the response that we're looking for. Do you think we're ascending toward a uh complex versus complicated, is that the difference? Well, I mean, that's the whole premise behind our corporation, Piran Zoy, is we want to change the paradigm so that medicine, health and wellness, even education systems, like with our training programs, we want shifting towards complex thinking rather than complicated thinking. So question being though, if we acquire enough data sets, do you think we'll move toward complicated thinking ultimately because if we get enough you know, let's say 25 years from now, if we have all the data we could possibly acquire on DNA, epigenetics, and how all these systems start to integrate it with an AI system, do you think at some point you could foresee like decoding this and turning it into a complicated system? No, you can't convert a complex system into complicated. It's just the nature of the system itself. We adapt, you know, just like, let's take the nicotine as an example that we just talked about. So the question is, okay, should you go out and start taking nicotine gum. There's going to be pluses and minuses to that. Somebody who's already using nicotine gum on a regular basis has the body adapted to the point where the nicotine no longer downregulates or the body has upregulated expression to compensate for that at that point. You know, you have an acute response versus a chronic response. The human system is just so miraculous in its ability to adapt to changing environments. When I say environments, I mean foods that we eat, the weather outside, the air we breathe everything will shift the system as it, it will adapt to in order to thrive in that new environment that can never be taken into a complicated approach you just can't apply complicated thinking to a complex organism yeah. now how accurate can we get with complex organisms well the more data points we have the more data we analyze the higher the probability but will we get to 100 percent? i don't think so yeah, it makes a lot of sense. The adaptability of the human genome is just fascinating, right? And I think on levels that most people, including myself, don't often think about is you know, sitting here in a room with artificial light, what's happening at the gene level? How is it impacting my ability to use nutrients and be inflamed and all these things? And that's the beauty of the complex systems thinking is like you start looking at things like that and you go, hey, you, know, you live in or you work in a, an environment where you're under blue lights all day. That's going to impact X, Y, Z down the road. And you have to then learn to potentially adjust things based on that. Does that sound like it fits into the, into the paradigm? It does. And, you know, I hate to even classify anything as good or bad sure. in that sense. Sure. I mean, you know, we know that people who live in areas of the United States that have a higher than average background radiation, you would say, oh, that's terrible. Those people are going to die of cancer and all this. And yet we see them. It's actually a predictor for greater longevity. And the reason is, is because of the adaptability of the human system. You throw in a little stress around that system, that adaptation that occurs will actually make the constitution of the system a little bit stronger. You know, we use the same process when we do detoxes. You know, everybody wants to take, you know, I'm going to drink this detox for a month and thinking that the detox itself is what's creating the outcome. And it is, but not in the way people think. When we take like plant phytosterols, this is a common one that's used for detoxification. Well, it's not the plant sterile that's detoxifying us in a direct sense, 
what it is, is those plant sterols are low-grade toxins to the liver. That low-grade toxin coming into the liver causes the liver to upregulate expressions of detoxifying enzymes. And so it creates a detoxification process, but it's not the substance itself that's creating the direct detoxification in the system. And so it's all about input and response that we need to focus on when we're looking at health. And I don't care if it's a food, if it's a supplement, if it's a medication, I mean, we need to be dispensed with all of our prejudices around anything that's an input to the system and look at it as strictly an input to the system. Here's the input. Here's the response in the system. Does the net outcome equal a positive response of what we're trying to achieve? Very interesting. So new client walks into your office. What are your jumping off points? I'm very curious to hear, like, what would you view as kind of the most important foundational things to address first? Obviously, it's loaded question, subjective, but yeah. I'm very curious to hear your thought process, right? Because if, if I walk into your office, there's very specific things you're looking at. Like, depending on where I'm trying to go with my objective, my target, I'm sure there's low-hanging fruit that you're going to go, boom, go there first. Well, what we do, you know, it's an interesting process that we've developed because we try not to stovepipe or bias anything that we see. You come in and you say, you know, my big goal is I want to be able to sleep through the night. Okay. So most of the time when you go to a healthcare practitioner, that's what they're going to focus on is how do we get you sleeping more? We don't do that. We say, okay, great. That's a goal for you. Now we want to assess your human system from a complex system standpoint. So we're going to assess sleep, stress, nutrition, exercise and movement, cognitive function, environment and exposures, and get your labs, get your genetics, get all this up onto a whiteboard and say, okay, what is the current state of this human system, period? Yeah, sleep is a component of it. They're not sleeping well. Okay, that's one of the things that informs on the current state of the system. We're looking at everything. And we're saying, okay, here are their goals. How do we get them from this current state to these goals? Sure. You're looking at causes rather than symptoms. Right. Yeah. So assessing DNA, urine, blood? Blood. Mm-hmm. But not urine? We do urinary metabolites. So yeah. um, acid. No, not necessarily. What we're looking at is more of we're looking at the four-time response to the cortisol release. We're looking at melatonin. We're looking at the breakdown of the sex hormones and seeing where they are from that standpoint. We don't go into like the neurotransmitters or the organic acids with that typically. You know, I think when we do that, we're trying to get a little bit too complicated and not complex. You know, it's you see these guys that do genetics online, and this is always something that's been relevant in my field is I know these brilliant guys that know every biochemical pathway. I mean, they know it better than me and they know where gene variants are involved in those pathways. And then they see a gene variant and they say, Oh, you've got this. So it causes this. Well, that's not the way the system works. That's complicated thinking. It's yes, this has an influence on this, but does it translate into symptoms? Does it translate into lab work that we're seeing to inform that? you know, is this consistent with this probability? 
And most of the time it's not, you know, I see people with MTHFR variants and they go to these gurus online that are genetic experts in MTHFR and everything is related to MTHFR. I mean, you go to the site and every symptom that you could possibly have is listed and it says, if you have MTHFR and you have any of these symptoms, then, you know, I can help you. And that's just the biggest fallacy out there. And it's not that they're trying to rope you into some poor science, but they're, that's just what they know. And that's what they're thinking is on a complicated level and not looking at the whole system together. So when you see somebody's blood work, what are the things that are going to stand out to you as being the greatest opportunities to progress? You mentioned hormones. Is it also looking at like cellular function, inflammation, just the basic foundational things? Yeah. I mean, and again, they all play together. You know, I don't take a single blood tests and say, oh, you've got this. It'd be like taking a genetic variant and saying, oh, you've got that, so it equals this. It just typically doesn't work that way. But we look at hormones. We look at inflammatory markers. We look at things like iron storage. We look at vitamin D levels. We look at homocysteine levels. We're looking at basic metabolic panels of liver function, kidney function. You're looking at lipid fractionations to get a better idea of what that system is doing. And then correlating that with what we're seeing in the other areas, you know, is this consistent with what we're seeing here? If so, then is there a direct impact of this to create that? So obviously we can't go into specific diagnoses. We can't go into specific treatments, but you go through this and you see a bunch of things wrong in somebody. We're not going to go into medical or vitamin treatments. Environmentally, movement wise, what are some of your foundational, like if you can give people three tips, I know it's ridiculous and overgeneralized, but I think people who are listening to this want to know, hey, I want to to thrive. I want to optimize. I don't have the ability to work with Dan. Where should I place my attention? Uh, Related goals related? Where's your thought process begin? You know, the first thing I would tell people is to really get good at understanding your own metrics. And what I mean by that, this is the simplest device that you can get to get an idea of what your system is doing. And I'm not saying look at it from an absolute context. So, you know, I'll have people that'll say, you know, my stress level runs 50 all the time. Well, okay, but what's it do when you do other things? You know, when you're feeling good, what is it? You know, when you get a full night's sleep, what is it? So we look at the dynamic of the system and what's happening with that rather than looking at those absolute numbers. Resting heart rate is a classic one. I can tell you, I know when I am off based on my resting heart rate because it'll go up 10 points. I normally run 53 on my resting heart rate. I mean, it's like a metronome throughout the year. And I've worn this thing continuously for three years. When I go up to 58 or 62, I know there's something off in my system. Something is disrupting my system. Alcohol has a huge impact on my system. Just one glass of alcohol and my stress scores go up. Now, a lot of people will think that's a bad thing. Okay. My stress score goes off the chart with exercise. That's a good thing. You want to stress the system and you want it to respond to that stress. This is the adaptation that we're trying to achieve. So you stress the system, create the adaptation for it. And there's where the benefits of the exercise come from. But if it stresses your system and your system doesn't fully recover until the next time you're exercising, you're probably going to get into detrimental stress. So there's the good stress and the bad stress. Now, alcohol, it trashes my system for about six hours after a glass of alcohol. Is that a bad thing? Yes, if I do it every day. Now, if I have a glass of alcohol once or twice every month, that's a whole different process. I'm actually adapting my system to a little bit of stress, and that's a good thing. What are your daily rituals to maintain health and immune function during this time? 
Oh, this is, uh, you know, take the vitamins that I mentioned, the three foundational ones for sure, but sleep is absolutely critical. Sleep is a, it's such an underestimated benefit to the body. I mean, we look at sleep as, you know, it's something we have to do. People don't look at sleep as a performance enhancer. Huge. And yeah, it's huge for that. Mindset. Mindset. I mean, we have a full-time mindset coach that works with all of our clients and mindset is absolutely critical right now. I mean, you know, the, the immune system right now is being bombarded and I'm not talking about the virus. I'm talking about our lifestyles right now. We're anything that disrupts routine impacts the immune system. We have now changed our daily routine pretty dramatically our immune system is going to be compromised from that. There's no question. I mean, even if we go on vacation, we think these things are great for stress, but because it disrupts our routine, our body actually gets stressed when we go on vacations, even though we may mentally feel like it's relieved. So having the disruption in the routine is stressful. And if you're reading social media right now, you're probably getting even more stress about what's happening. You know, and people, they'll stay up late at night on the computer looking at social media and going, what's going to happen? You know, look at my finances, you know, how's this going to impact me? How are we going to get through this? The stress is ubiquitous right now in the system and it's contagious. I mean, it's more contagious than the virus. You know, you get around somebody who's stressed, just think about how you feel about that. So what we need to do is start reframing a lot of this. I mean, for us, we look at it and we say, you know, gives us time to step back and start working on our processes. I mean, we're losing substantial income right now and we're paying all of our employees as this goes out. So we're just, you know, money's flying out the door at the moment, but we also look at it and say, okay, this is a time for us to regroup and do some things that we've been planning on doing. You know, we have the downtime, we have the ability to do that. So we've been focusing on the really positive aspects of what this is creating. You know, I see this also as a, it's a paradigm reset of the world. I mean, look at the what's going to change when this resolves. We're going to see a change in the education system. We're going to see a change in the medicine system. I mean, they've approved telemedicine without having physicians be licensed in every state that they're doing telemedicine. And I think that's going to stick. That's something that has opened up a new door. We're going to see changes in people looking at their health and not taking it for granted and saying, oh, if something happens, then I'll do that. Well, this is a wake-up call. So I think you're going to see a shift in the way people function just from this entire event. I completely agree with you. And now you're speaking about intentionally subjecting yourself to stresses, you know, objectively curating stress. And do you have any subjective or objective levels of manipulation? So like how far are you trying to get out of homeostasis, right? Like obviously it's dependent on your ability to recover, but you personally, do you have any kind of markers you go, hey, I intentionally want to get myself out of this homeostasis every day or every other day, or like, yeah. do you have any way that you approach that in general for people watching? Yeah. And the biggest thing to pay attention to is how high the stress goes and how quickly it recovers. And that's why these are absolutely critical because they give you that metric. It's the dynamic again, not the absolute of it as an example. So Micra is a superhuman athlete, my wife, And she's got this like VO2 max is off the charts. So we go out and we'll run along the trails or along the river here in Austin. And, you know, we run at a pretty good pace. Well, we finish up and we download our data and, you know, my stress score is hitting like 80, 90, 100. And she's at like 30 or 40, you know, running with me. And then she recovers in like 20 minutes and it takes me three to four hours. Now, 
that creates a really good stress adaptation response for me that does not for her. So if she wants to progress and improve, she's going to have to leave me behind. And she doesn't want to do that, but I'm trying to get her to kind of say, you know, just run off, you know, get ahead and I'll catch up to you. But you've got to create what we call a you stress response and not a mal stress response. So you also don't want to push it so hard that those stress scores go up and it takes you 24 hours to fully recover from that. Probably comes back to what you just said is like start to learn your biometrics, right? Learn yeah. yourself measuring the sleep. Do you have an aura ring or do you usually just use the Garmin? I just use the Garmin. You know, it's interesting. I have a lot of clients that use aura ring and it's about a 50, 50 mix of whether the aura ring or the Garmin is more accurate for sleep. Interestingly, the most accurate one I've seen for sleep is the BioStrap. BioStrap, they've really focused on sleep metrics and none of these are great for sleep structure. You know, they'll look at sleep time. And what I do is I usually combine deep sleep and REM sleep and I want to get three hours every night. And I know that that's my magic number to combine those two. If I get three hours every night, then I'm doing really well. But you can also use it as a dynamic and say, okay, well, I'm only getting 20 minutes of deep sleep and I took this supplement of DHHB and all of a sudden I'm getting 60 minutes of deep sleep. That's a pretty good metric to tell you that you're probably doing the right thing, but you also have to measure, you know, how do I feel in the morning? You know, is it creating that positive response that I'm seeing in the metrics? You brought up DHHB <laughs> and you're one of the world's experts on peptides. Yeah. Bar none. I'd love to have you I mean, DHHB, people, most people will know what that is. I'd love to have you share that. And then maybe we can get into some peptides for optimizing immune system, talking a little bit deeper around, you know, what should we be doing right now, if anything? Yeah. Well, DHHB is interesting. It's more of a small molecule. It's a dihydrohonokyol, which is an extract of magnolia bark, but it works extremely well for anxiety and sleep. And I have some people that will take it twice a day just because they have some low-grade anxiety during the day and then uh, take it at night to help them sleep. Does it work on the GABA pathway? It does. And in fact, it's been used to get people off of benzodiazepines. There's been some clinical studies on it for that purpose. And you have seen good results because I know when we first started experimenting with that about a year, a little less than a year ago, six months, we were kind of getting mixed messaging. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's individualized. You know, everybody has a different response to the different sleep formulations we use. Some people do really great with magnesium glycinate. And typically, if I see GAD1 variants in their genes, that's the first one I'll go to with them. Do you prefer the glycinate over 3 and 8? Either one. The glycine and the magnesium okay. together help with that GAD1 variant. The 3 and 8 is going to get into the brain more. So you can experiment with either one of those. Usually do both. Yeah, that works great. Do both. DHHB will work well for some people. Phenobut will work well for some people. You know, it varies across the board in your response. So that's why you have to individualize the approach to each person. Are they still able to make Phenobut at like TaylorMade or any of the peptide companies? Yes. TaylorMade did have Phenobut in. They're able to formulate it. And there's a couple of research chemical companies that are still selling it as a research chemical. I don't want to get into gray water stuff, Dan. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, you can't sell it as a supplement right now got it okay but it still can be sold as a end of one research yeah yes we also briefly mentioned some potential immune boosting peptides or cellular optimization peptides and it was some decent protocols that exist right now so if anyone wants to go to that realm if they're really concerned with optimizing health and immunity ultimately where would you point them 
it's all speculation. I mean, we look at these peptides and we say, what is the, based on their mechanism of action, what they do, do you think this would be a good thing? So right now it's pretty well believed that thymosin alpha one, which will boost the immune system, especially T cell response is a definite plus right now. So doing, you know, two to three times a week, dose of thymosin alpha one to get the one, immune one milligram, probably two, three times a week, 1.5 milligrams. Typically I know, uh, Jean-Francois Tremblay, his mutual friend, he's actually doing, I think, three milligrams, three times a week right now. He just feels like the data was based on a different formulation, and he thinks that the thymosin alpha should be dosed a little bit higher. Is anybody quantifying this stuff with blood work? Like, it'd be super interesting to see, like, just do one peptide for 30 days, show me your blood work, what's happening, right? I'll be willing to be the guinea pig, because I was talking to JF yesterday, and he's like, hey, man, let's, let's run some tests. Why not, right? I mean, is one, but at least you can start seeing a little bit of direction because if you do this thymusin A1, are the T cells going up and can we quantify it? Well, where you'd have to quantify it. So UCLA, their Department of Pathology has a research lab that will run samples for research only. So you have to submit it under a number and you can get the CD38s, CD8s, CD4s and see that changing over time. So they look at naive and active T cells that can be done, but that gets expensive getting into those kind of tests for sure. If we just know people in the lab and talk to them, we can make it happen. Yeah, there you go. We got to find the right people. Listeners, if anyone knows anyone in the UCLA labs. So thymusin A1, good time to be dabbling with epitalin or thymulin or anything like that. Is that different? Obviously mechanistically different, but potentially beneficial in this time? Yeah, I have, I have most of my clients stepping back. I mean, a lot of them are using the growth hormone or releasing hormones, and I have them maintaining that. But as far as looking at the performance enhancers, I've kind of got them step back from that a little bit until this is over. So I've got them loaded up with LL37. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that one. Tell me about that. Yeah, LL37 is interesting. It has been shown in viral illnesses to block the ability of viruses to attach and internalize into cells. Is that oral? No, it's injectable as well. So thymosin alpha and uh, LL37 are both injectable. So I've got my clients, they're loaded up. They've got the vials of it. And I say, you know, if you have symptoms, call me, we'll talk through it. And then, you know, start the LL37 twice a day if the symptoms are consistent with a viral infection. Another one we're using is C-Link, C-Link nasal spray. This one is interesting because it's actually been shown to substantially reduce influenza virus viral titers in two days to zero. Wow. I mean, it's an isolated Russian study. It's enough to convince me that I've got my clients shooting up two sprays of that every day right, right now. And that's something that Taylor made compounds as well with a nasal spray? It is. And the other one is pentacin. Pentacin phosphate, it works really well with, again, keeping the virus from being able to enter the cell. And, you know, we think of pentacin as more of a, you know, pain reliever, chronic pain, inflammation, helping with that. But it has been in clinical trials shown to benefit in that regard with viral illness. Yeah. When you sent that one to me yesterday, I looked it up and there was some really interesting data there around inflammation and I wasn't seeing the correlation, but makes sense now. So all of those, you think like stack it, go all of them. And now the question becomes, okay, I've made myself bulletproof. I always say my immune system's a beast anyway, is like likely to be getting sick or slim, but there's this conversation now around me potentially being a carrier. So if I am muting all of these viruses from attacking my cells, it's still possible that I'm carrying this around or would it have to be attached in the cells and proliferating in order for me to then transmit it to somebody else? 
No, I mean, there's a lot of people carrying this thing right now asymptomatically. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest problems with it is it's got a long incubation period. It's got a lot of people that are asymptomatic with it that are carriers and shedding this. I mean, it's shown that it's actually shedding in the stool up to 24 days in people that get infected. So, you know, it's a unique virus. It's hopefully opening the eyes to not only the medical community, but the people of the world that says, you know, you need to be anti-fragile, you know, get this stuff taken care of and don't have to panic when this happens, be ready for it. Now, here's the ultimate esoteric question that you don't want to answer. What's the likelihood that this has been curated by some other country or some other organization to make it reality? I had to throw it out there. Well, I mean, you know, that's a real question. I mean, that's, you know, this is the next realm. I think we're going to see a lot of biological attacks occurring in this realm because we're now so good at gene editing that there's a lot of countries that are gunning for the U.S. And there's some nefarious people out there that are taking advantage of that. And they would love to see something collapse here. But I don't think this one, you know, based on all the researchers that I've been communicating with and the data I'm getting from some of the government people, I don't think this, I mean, this thing is, I think it's 96% identical to bat COVID. So it's just a 4% mutation. It's a very small mutation. And there aren't fingerprints of gene editing in any way that people can identify. So I think a lot of that is more conspiratorial. And a lot of these major viruses that have become pandemics have come out of China. It's just the population there, the culture there is just primed for it. I mean, these open air markets with all the live animals and dead animals and, you know, it's just a breeding ground for this to happen. I mean, Spanish flu decimated the world population came out of there. The Black Plague came out of there. I mean, all of these things are coming out of this country because they really don't have the system in place to really have that environment that does not allow that to happen. Dan, just previous to what you said right there, you said something that you've got to become anti-fragile. Have you guys created a blueprint or a framework around, hey, here's all the boxes you need to check to become anti-fragile? Because I know a lot of the listeners would be very interested in this concept of becoming anti-fragile and optimizing it so we don't have to face you know, these challenging times. And we're in the process of developing kind of metrics for that. I don't know if you, you know, Michael Osterlink, right? No. Michael's the one that wrote that anti-fragile article that you posted. Okay. So Michael is, he's the head trainer of the mental fitness division of Seal Fit and works at Spartan 7. But he he actually just joined our team. He came on as a uh, scientific advisory board member, and he's going to help us to develop some programs. But we're in the process of developing metrics for, you know, what does anti-fragile look like? You know, we're looking at VO2 maxes. We're looking at vascular endothelial response. We're looking at body composition. We're looking at lab work and hormones. We're looking at end-tidal CO2. We're looking at brain QEG patterns that would indicate somebody who has achieved that kind of state. So there's not a metric for it right now. And I think it's going to be this constellation of metrics that we can grade and say, okay, well, you get so many points for this, so many for this. And at some point we will have this threshold to say, okay, we've achieved this anti-fragile state. Right. Of the so you're creating the objectives, the metrics, the targets, and then reverse engineering from there. Like, here's how you're going to get it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's exactly where I'll after, right? Is create some standard, some utopian standard, like, hey, we want to be here. And then let's objectify the process and just, you know, walk us into it. And that's one thing I talk about almost daily now is objective versus subjective league. If you give me a target, like my nickname growing up was seek and destroy, like 
there's nothing I won't do. But if I don't have a target, you end up being ambiguously, you know, meandering around looking for like a squirrel looking for a nut. And I think there's a lot of people out there who, if we define that ideal target, we go, hey, that's where I want to go. It's like going to the Olympia stage or going to the Tour de France or, you know, whatever it is. Like I'm going there and nothing's going to stop me. So I really look forward to the day when that happens because I'll be your first customer in line. I know exactly how to work with you. I say, okay, here's the threshold for anti-fragile. And here's like super anti-fragile, but you can't be there. I can't get there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know me better than I know myself. The irony of it. Dan, thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for tuning into our live Facebook. This is kind of a short notice. We didn't have a huge number of people on here, but I'm sure we'll get a great response afterwards. And everyone who's listening on the podcast, thanks for tuning in. Dr. Dan, where should everyone go to learn more about Appearon and becoming anti-fragile? You can go to www.appearonzoi. So A-P-E-I-R-O-N-Z-O-H. It's ape iron <laughs> I just I just made that correlation. Yeah. And Zoa is Z-O-H, yes? Correct. And I'm going to link to it in the show notes. And we got a bunch of people saying thank you, Dr. Dan. Thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. Please give Mike her a hug. I miss her. Tell her yeah. I love her. And hopefully we'll see you guys very, very soon. All right. Take care. All right, buddy. Hopefully you enjoyed this chat with Dan Stickler. He's become a very good friend of mine and just an absolute wealth of information. You know, this guy is not only talking the talk, he's walking the walk. He's fit. He's in shape. He's got a great relationship, great life. And he's really impacting the world in a positive way. I love people who are altruistically creating massive impact in their family and their community and certainly around the world. Dan is growing a peer on literally everywhere. It seems like he's growing this amazing following. So thank you so much for Dan Stickler for being here on the show. And thank you very much to Blue Box for sponsoring this podcast and making it happen. And you guys can get 15% off your order Blue Box, blueblocks.com slash intelligence. Or just go to blueblocks.com, use the code MUSCLE, get hooked up with 15% off your order of Blue Box. Guys, I hope and I truly pray that you're happy, that you're fulfilled, that you're loving life. If you're having a hard time with anything with respect to your fitness and your body and your health, head over to the Muscle Intelligence Facebook group. Join us in there. Give us a shout out. Say hello. Let us know what you, we can help with. There's a few questions that get you into the group and just kind of let us know how we can help. And we really want to provide value for you and for your loved ones. And if this is a podcast you enjoyed or if you ever enjoyed any of the podcasts, share with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from the intelligence approach to life. Guys, thank you for being here. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.